Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, April 6th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore national security. We're returning to a discussion on China today. We're going to focus on an aspect of competition with China that most of us in the Midwest area of America don't consider very often, and that's maritime competition. As you've likely heard on previous shows, we know China has been working diligently for a few decades now to dramatically improve their military. Those improvements certainly include the People's Liberation Army Navy, or the PLAN, among other maritime component forces available to the Chinese. You might refer to our conversation a few months ago with Dr. Raymond Kuo, which you can find on the KYMN radio archives for this show. Some national security experts have called for the U.S. government to craft a comprehensive strategy to challenge, deter, and to defeat China should our nations come to blows. Our guest today is a recognized expert on many areas in national security, including maritime strategy. And we'll discuss an article he wrote outlining an American mar maritime strategy for China, among other topics. Dr. Thomas Mankin is the president and chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a senior research professor and co-director of the Master of Arts in Strategy, Cybersecurity, and Intelligence at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Between 1997 and 2016, he served as a professor of strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. Professor Mankin served as a member of the congressionally mandated National Defense Strategy Commission and as a member of the Board of Visitors for Marine Corps University. His previous government career includes service as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy Planning from 2006 to 2009, where he helped craft the 2006 Quadrennial Defense Review and the 2008 National Defense Strategy. Tom Mankin served on the staff of the 2014 National Defense Panel, the 2010 Quadrennial Defense Review Independent Panel, and the Commission on the Intelligence Capabilities of the United States Regarding Weapons of Mass Destruction. He served in the Defense Department's Office of Net Assessment and as a member of the Gulf War Air Power Survey. Dr. Thomas Mankin also served for 24 years as an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve to include tours in Iraq and Kosovo. He holds a master's degree and a doctorate in international affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a Bachelor of Arts degree in both history and international relations with highest honors from the University of Southern California. In 2009, he was awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service and in 2016, the Department of the Navy Superior Civilian Service Medal. Dr. Tom Mankin, welcome to National Security This Week. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So, Tom, we, we are both retired naval officers now. Uh, naval officers think long and hard about issues of maritime security. How much of your time do you spend focusing on uh, looking at the challenges China poses to American national security interests? Well, 
Uh, you know, first, I, I would I would say uh, I, I don't consider myself a, a China expert, a, a sinologist. But the truth is, I've, I've actually been spending a lot of my my professional time uh, looking at these issues really since the late 1990s. And, uh, you know, it's it's just the, the force of events that I spend more and more time thinking about China, Chinese Navy, maritime issues and their their impact on U.S. national security. Well, it's kind of, it's, you know, I think you were an intelligence officer in the reserves. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So you and I share that background as well. Uh, I think we've both uh, seen the rise of China over the last few decades, the constant uh, iterative approach that they've used to improve their capabilities, uh, training uh, systems, all of those things. So it sort of drives us as professionals in the intelligence world and certainly as naval officers to stay focused on potential peer competitors. And I think China has kind of risen to the level where they we might very well consider them to be a peer competitor at this point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the uh, it's you know it's uh, it's been remarkable uh, the extent to which the People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLAN, as you said, has uh, has grown and 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 developed uh, in recent decades, uh, from a, a real just sort of coastal defense force to a force that deploys internationally. And I know we'll we'll talk more about that as we go on. Well, why don't we go ahead and tackle that uh, right now? Maybe you could just go ahead and give us your perspective on how China. And in particular, People's Liberation Army Navy, the PLAN, has evolved over the past couple of decades. Uh, how, how have you seen their progression? Yeah, well, first, just starting with geography, right? China is a continental power. China is traditionally a, a land power. And the Chinese Communist Party's military, well, it's all there in the name. It's the People's Liberation Army. Uh, that's the name of the Chinese Armed Forces, uh, and you know everything else is kind of a, an appendage onto that. So right, it's the People's Liberation Army Navy mm-hmm. is the Chinese Navy. The People's Liberation Army Air Force is the Chinese Air Force. So you have this sort of big, you know, colossal army body with uh, you know naval and air appendages, and also a, a missile appendage that used to be called the Second Artillery, but it's now called the Strategic Rocket Forces. Um, and I think that you know that that nomenclature. You know, says a lot, certainly about the history of the PLAN, that it was um, historically a coastal defense force. Uh, historically, it was actually commanded by uh, by a general, not an admiral. Uh, and what what we've seen, really starting since the 1990s, is a, a major effort to modernize and expand the the PLAN, uh, such as that it is now, you know, a a technologically capable uh, cert- certainly, you know, regionally capable navy that's you know that that deploys that deploys globally, and I think that says a lot about about China, uh, Chinese Communist Party, and their you know their their goals, their their vision of uh, of China to move from just being this this continental power to seeking to also become a maritime power, and, and to do that to prepare for that they have. Uh expanded their capabilities in their fleet, uh, building aircraft carriers, uh, submarines that can go much further distances uh, safely, uh, nuclear-powered submarines, etc. Uh, any, any thoughts on those, uh, on those capabilities and how it's altered their approach? Yeah, well, first I'd say that the development of Chinese uh, sea power has gone hand-in-hand hand with Chinese economic strength, economic modernization. I mean, the great 
theorist uh, of of sea power, Alfred Thayer Mahan, you know, he talked about sea power uh, as as having a, an economic dimension. And so, as the Chinese economy has grown, so too has Chinese shipbuilding. Right, China is one of the biggest commercial shipbuilders in the world, and also naval shipbuilding. And you know, they have uh, adopted uh, I think a pretty sensible approach as a as a fast follower in naval affairs. You know, they first purchased, so they, their first aircraft carrier they purchased uh, from, uh, from Russia and then refitted it to their own needs. Their second, third aircraft carriers they've built uh, indigenously, but really, you know, following uh, designs, Rus- Russian designs. And then they're moving to, you know, to develop their own indigenous uh, aircraft carriers, indigenous designs going forward, home, homegrown designs. And they did, they've done the same thing with, uh, with submarines. They've done the same thing with uh, surface combatants. And uh, they've armed, armed those, those ships, those submarines, uh, with increasingly capable weaponry to project their power farther and farther from China's shores. And, and I'll ask you this again, because we're both, we're both intelligence officers. How much of that leap forward that the Chinese made uh, was due purely to internal domestic research inside China, and how much of it was because sure. they succeeded in doing some uh, some really top-notch uh, national security espionage and and found designs in other countries and reverse engineered them for their own advancements? Yeah, so uh, it, integral to the Chinese model of innovation is this you know notion of I'll be polite about it you know importing <laughs> best practices from overseas um, but yeah what does that mean that means yeah China has engaged in in uh, intellectual property theft, theft of just colossal proportions and that's true in the in the naval domain it's true in other military domains it's true in you know in industry and other areas uh, of, of high tech uh, they've ripped off the world. Uh, they've stolen, you know, the the uh, research and development from all across the world, and they've applied it to their to their purposes. And what that's allowed them to do is shorten the timelines needed to field new capabilities. Now, the timeline to you know, to to build a ship, uh, I would I would say is not you know it's not markedly shorter in in China than it is in in the West. But all the upfront work that that needs to be done before you actually, um, you know, lay down the keel of a new ship. Well, that's they've they've uh, they've shortened the, those timelines through intellectual property theft. They've really bootstrapped themselves up through the, the hard work of others. And uh, a big question going forward is whether uh, Chinese government, Chinese military is going to be able to make that leap from. Uh, drafting off of the, the the research and the investment of others to actually making their own, uh, doing their own research, making their own breakthroughs, having their own innovation. innovation. I think that's still, except in a couple of areas where they've demonstrated it, um, in, in many areas, that's still to be determined. Yeah. So we're, I do want to get into more discussion about uh, the advances in the Chinese uh, Navy and, and, and other maritime services, but uh, we should probably... Uh, do what Stephen Covey tells us and begin with the end in mind, right? Uh, seven habits of highly effective people. How, what do you see the, chi- the are that? Uh, so the Chinese 
we'll talk a little bit about policy and strategy too today, I think. Uh, what do you think the Chinese aims or objectives are for the broader Western Pacific region? What, what is it the Chinese are trying to accomplish through the, through the use of their tools of national power as they apply both the art and science of statecraft against other nations in the region, and frankly, even against the United States on, on the other end of the Pacific Ocean? What, what is it the Chinese are trying to do? Well, first, let, let's let's be specific. Uh, when in this case, when we're talking about the Chinese, we really are talking about the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, uh, they they are the ones who control China. And first and foremost, when we think about you know China's aims, we need to think about their aims. And first and foremost, for the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, it's all about remaining in power. It's 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 staying on top. It's it's having a monopoly of power in the in the Chinese system. So from their perspective, you know, what needs to happen to perpetuate their rule? Well, China needs to from, you know, from their perspective, China, the Chinese economy needs to continue to grow. Uh, but also increasingly, they have stoked this view of not just of Chinese nationalism, but a Chinese revival and Chinese greatness and China, uh, from their perspectives, reassuming its rightful place uh, as the as the hegemon in in Asia and a power to be reckoned with beyond Asia. So they really have set a, a series of goals for the Chinese military and for China to uh, be able to project China's influence first into China's neighborhood and then beyond. And uh, for them, you know, uh, the, the year 2049 uh, looms very large because that's the centennial of uh, the, the, the Communist Party assuming power uh, in, in China. It's the end of the Chinese Civil War. It's, yeah, it's the end of the, uh, the, the Chinese Revolution. So uh, they, you know, they aim to be, you know, a, a, a world-class power by 2049. All roads lead to Beijing, in other words. Uh, absolutely. I think their, their view of international affairs is, is profoundly hierarchical. So um, whereas I think the United States, the West, uh, legally at least, you know, we see all countries as equal, right? Everybody... Uh, every country has a, an equal vote in the United Nations, you know, whether you're San Marino or or uh, the United States. Uh, for them, it's it's pri it's predominantly hierarchical. So it's about uh, not just becoming the hegemon, but ensuring that other states in the region um, acknowledge and beyond the region acknowledge China's rightful role and kowtow to uh, to the hegemon. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Mankin, and we're discussing maritime strategy and China. Uh, so, Dr. Mankin, let's discuss, uh, if we could, uh, a little bit more on, on PLA Navy capabilities. H how do you see the PLA Navy operating at sea, uh, both today and, and what they're trying to to build an operational capacity for the near and far future. I think it would be instructive for our listeners to understand what the Chinese are trying to, to create regarding operational capabilities for their fleet. 
Yeah, John, you're absolutely right that, you know, it's it's one thing to build hardware. It's one thing to build uh, modern warships. It's it's another thing to actually be able to operate them effectively, particularly effectively uh, far from your own shores. And uh, that requires skilled manpower and that requires a lot of a lot of experience. And so what uh, the, the PLAN has been doing uh well for for decades now for a couple of decades now is is building the capacity to operate far from china so china's been uh, conducting uh, anti-piracy patrols so-called anti-piracy patrols all the way up into the uh, up into the middle east uh china's established uh what amounts to uh, a a base uh in the horn of africa uh, they are looking to establish other bases uh, uh, in in the region as well, and so they really are quietly uh, but persistently developing the ability to operate at sea for you know for longer and longer periods of time. And we talk about those as being uh, out of area operations, quote unquote. Uh, and when a when a maritime power decides to project their power well beyond their own shores, that is a fundamentally different capability, and, and it requires tremendous logistics support and a whole bunch of other command and control functions that have to be in place to support those kinds of operations. Uh, so clearly the PLA Navy is advancing in this regard in their ability to project power uh, well beyond that first island chain from or, or just off the Chinese uh, mainland coast. Is that, is, that how, is that the right way to see it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that, you know, that uh, expansion of military power, naval power has gone hand in glove with the expansion of uh, Chinese economic influence. So I think what we see is um, not not the Chinese replicating um, kind of the, the, the U.S. model or other militaries models of, of military bases all, all over the world, but kind of dual use. Uh, infrastructure, dual-use facilities, both military and civilian, that can support Chinese naval operations uh, out of out of area, and uh, and so their yeah their presence is is growing, and their uh, their ability to project power beyond China's shores is most assuredly growing as well. And do you see this uh, <clears throat> like, for instance, their their basing in in Djibouti as a, as an example for the PLA Navy? Uh, do you see this tied? I mean, you mentioned it just a minute ago, but do you see it tied directly to the Belt and Road Initiative on the part of the Chinese? Are they trying to add a military component to that uh, sort of economic development effort that Belt and Road is supposed to be? Yeah, uh, I think whether it's uh, uh, Belt and Road or even you know even before BRI was announced, uh, I think the the expansion of the Chinese Navy went you know hand in hand with. Uh, Chinese economic interests. So, China gets uh, a, a lot of uh, a lot of oil from you know from the Persian Gulf, from the Middle East. So, uh, not surprisingly, uh, you know, Chinese naval operations have been going on in Middle Eastern waters for for some period of time. But BRI just you know just emphasizes that uh, wherever you know, China's uh, you know, money is going, uh, the military is going to go as well, and that's in part that's to uh, protect those uh, sea lines of communication. In part, it's to be able to provide options if 
uh, things go bad in any number of countries where uh, Chinese citizens need to be evacuated, uh, whether Chinese interests need to be protected, the whole whole bunch of reasons why the the, the Chinese military uh, broadly, you know, broadly construed to including the, the Navy are involved where China's economic interests are involved. And, and, and so we should be objective when we take a look at what the Chinese capabilities are and their projection of power abroad. They're kind of doing exactly the same kinds of things that we've always done in keeping, or, or I should say, maintaining those sea lines of communication, maintaining those supply lines, especially for oil coming out of the Middle East, as an example. So we shouldn't be too surprised that now that they have the capability, the capacity to do those kinds of operations, that they are, in fact, doing them to support their their economic uh, continued economic development. That's not a comment commentary on on supporting what the Chinese Communist Party is doing internally to their country <laughs> and and in other things. But we should just be be clear eyed in understanding what their strategic imperatives are for economic development to understand why they're doing some of these out of area operations. Yeah, we, we shouldn't be surprised. Um, I think where we should question is, yeah, what what's the ultimate motive? Yeah. Meaning um, the U.S., you know, U.S. command of the sea, uh, U.S. naval superiority for, you know, for decades has served a, a common good. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, as you talked about sea lines of communication, you know, U.S. superiority at sea has served to keep sea lines of communication open uh, so much so that you know people don't really even think about it they think it's just sort of a, a state of nature and right. and because of that uh, at least at least pre-covid right uh, you know goods and services were able to flow freely across the world's ocean and that you know that state brought about globalization it it it, it raised millions upon millions of, of people actually many, many of them in China out of poverty and it it it's brought us you know in the west and and beyond just a, a lot of a lot of benefit it's worth remembering that that benefit really came on the on the back of this ubiquitous but kind of underappreciated naval superiority i think w- w- the question we should ask in the future is yeah are are the are the chinese as committed <laughs> yeah. to the, the the free flow of goods and services across across the the global commons as the united states and, and before it great britain uh have been uh, i think that's a very that's a very legitimate question yeah <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh, integrated or, or or what we refer to in the military as joint operations uh how much are the Chinese training to coordinate between, say, the PLA Navy and the People's Liberation Army Air Force for operations at sea? And I bring that up specifically with regard to, say, the South China Sea or certainly Taiwan. Uh, what have we seen in the way of integration between those two power projection capabilities, the Air Force and the Navy, and, and on the part of the People's Liberation Army? Yeah, they, they do more of that now than they did uh, before. Uh, you know, it, again, I think it's important to see where where China was to appreciate where China is and, and where it may be going. But, um, you know, for a long time, you had a military that was that was dominated by ground forces, dominated by the army. Again, the, the, the name of the whole military uh, ends in the word army. <laughs> and it's only recent it was actually really uh, within the last decade that the PLA ground forces 
aka the the Chinese army, really got renamed as the ground forces to to differentiate them from the from the armed forces overall. So traditionally, there wasn't a lot of uh, of joint operations between say army, navy, air force, and then for the for the Chinese again, they have a, an independent missile force. Yeah, and then they also have have stood up a what they call their strategic support force, which also includes space and and cyber capabilities. Traditionally, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh, of cooperation there. Um, within the last decade, uh, the Chinese have implemented a series of uh, of reforms, including the the development of of what they call theater commands, <clears throat> and one of those theaters is opposite uh, Taiwan. Uh, there are other other theaters uh, as well, but the idea there is to try to boost cooperation. Uh, and collaboration between between the different uh, the different services. So, as you say, Navy working with the PLA Air Force uh, and the Strategic Rocket Forces, uh, all kind of all of collaborating. And and, and as evidence of that, uh, you see more naval officers, more Air Force officers in command roles uh, in these new in these new theater commands. So. The Chinese are serious. The Chinese Communist Party is serious. They're serious about the prospect of a war with Taiwan. They're serious about the prospect of, uh, of other types of wars, including uh, with, with Japan over the Senkakus. And they're behaving like a very serious military. They're, they are preparing, uh, not to be too alarmist, but I don't think I'm being too alarmist, they're, they're preparing for war. Well, that, that's what militaries are supposed to do, right? <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. To, to, to deter war, always be prepared for war. That's something that we learned all the way going back to Thucydides. So uh, let, let's talk. You've mentioned the <clears throat> Chinese ballistic missile forces, uh, the strategic uh, r- rocket forces. Let, let's talk a little bit about those. Uh, they, both ha- they have both sort of an, a defensive and an offensive capability with regard to their ballistic missile forces, especially in the, in the maritime dimension. Uh, our listeners may have heard the term <clears throat> carrier killer, for instance, uh, with regard to some of the Chinese ballistic missiles. What are those missiles, and why have U.S. Navy leaders been concerned about this threat for some time now? Yeah, so one of the features of, of China's military you know, going, you know, going back decades is uh, a real reliance on ballistic and cruise missiles uh, for, for strike. Um, whereas, say, the, the U.S. in particular, the U.S. Navy, U.S. Air Force, we rely a lot on aircraft uh, to deliver uh, weapons against targets at range. Um, and that's, that's a result of a lot of investment, a lot of, a lot of development in the, in the U.S. over decades. Chinese historically have, have used missiles for those same, for those same missions, and I think what we what we see is uh, a, a concerted, very thoughtful attempt on the part of of the Chinese military, really going back um, uh, to the 1990s, to try to eliminate those capabilities, those American and Allied capabilities that pose the greatest threat uh, to to China. So if if we were to go back to the 1990s. And if you're sitting in Beijing, um, the thing you would be most concerned about uh, would be U.S. Uh, air capabilities based 
either on U.S. territory, say in the Western Pacific, uh, on Guam, for example, or on allied territory, let's just say in, in Japan. And so what the, the Chinese military did first is uh, develop and field a whole generation of precision-guided conventional ballistic missiles that were really meant to take out the air bases, the logistical support facilities uh, that, that were necessary to be able to, to support aircraft in the Western Pacific uh, within range of China. Now, if you, if you, if you imagine that, that that job is done and that those air bases are now held at risk, uh, again, from the perspective of, of Beijing, the next the question would be, okay, well, with that off the table, then what what poses the the greatest threat to me now? And the greatest threat under those conditions uh, was is U.S. carrier strike groups and the naval uh, aircraft, naval strike aircraft that they carry. So then, we uh, we saw China develop and field a whole generation of anti ship ballistic missiles. Uh, the first. Not, not to get too, uh, too technical, but the first one was the, what we call the DF-21D. And then the, the second generation longer, longer range is the DF-26. Uh, DF is uh, Dongfang. That's the, the Chinese designation for, for, their, uh, for their ballistic missiles. So the, the, the Chinese have been very, again, very methodical. They've deployed a, 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 a series of capabilities that are designed to knock out US aircraft carriers and to disable their air wings. And so now if we can imagine that task uh, having been completed, I'm not arguing that it has been completed, but again, from a planning perspective for Beijing, then the next, uh, the next task is dealing with, well, the, the relatively small number of strategic bombers that the United States has. Uh, we're hoping to get more uh, in in upcoming years as the as the B twenty one is fielded. But right now, in terms of um, advanced bombers, it's twenty or less B twos that we've had in in the uh, in the force since the uh, since the nineteen nineties, and it's the strike capabilities of our submarine force. And so, not surprisingly, now we see China investing more and more in anti submarine warfare. So what we're seeing is, a, again, a, a long-term, methodical, patient uh, uh, investment effort to try to take off the table uh, U.S. capabilities that we use to deter, and, to deter war and to defend our allies and to protect American lives and territory. So you've referred to uh, the Chinese having sort of, a, I would say, an epiphany or an awakening back in the 90s. Was it because of what they saw uh, American combat power do in the first Gulf War that they suddenly had this epiphany and they realized they needed to maybe fundamentally change how they operate? Is, is that a good assessment? It, it is. There, there really are uh, – there were three important signposts, best, best we can understand. There were three important signposts for the Chinese uh, and the Chinese military and the Chinese Communist Party leadership in assessing their military uh, capabilities. The first, as you say, was the 1991 Gulf War, where the United States and its allies uh, soundly defeated uh, Saddam Hussein's military, which looked you know, to, the, to the Chinese a lot like the military that they had. <laughs> so even though they weren't parties to the, to the war, the, the message was clear to them, which is that the, their, their then current military capabilities were, were insufficient. So that was sort of 
milestone number one. Milestone number two uh, happened in the mid 1990s, 1995, 1996, uh, during the China Taiwan uh, crisis and the Taiwan Straits crisis. And as part of that, um, as part of that, the United States sailed uh, several aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait uh, as a as a sign of strength. And the 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 Chinese military at the time had precious few options to coerce Taiwan or to respond to the United States. And, and anecdotally, at, at least, it's believed that the, the Chinese military only found out about the, the passage of U.S. aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait through international news media. They didn't even know that it was going on at the time. So their, the, even their ability to understand what was going on uh, in the Taiwan Strait was limited. <clears throat> so that was signpost number two, another wake-up call. The third, um, the third signpost is one that we don't even think about, one that's sort of a, a historical footnote, but that's that in 1999, during the uh, Kosovo Air War, uh, the United States mistakenly struck the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. That's right. Um, Notably, it was actually a a B-2 bomber with precision-guided munitions, struck the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. And uh, based on, you know, uh, press reports, not only did we strike the, uh, the, the embassy, but we struck the offices of uh, the Chinese intelligence delegation operating out of the embassy, and based on memoirs that have uh, come out of uh, uh, come out of China and other sources, uh, the Chinese government, Chinese Communist Party, saw that as a deliberate act. It wasn't a deliberate act, uh, but they saw it as a deliberate act, and and out of that, uh, out of that accident in uh, in Kosovo in May of 1999. Uh, grew a whole generation of programs aimed squarely at the United States and and uh, aimed at causing us pain. So really for the Chinese, three, um, three signposts in the 1990s, and I would say, you know, three signposts that those of us in, in the West weren't really even paying that much attention to. The law of unintended consequences. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Mankin, and we're discussing maritime strategy and China. Uh, so, Dr. Tom Mankin, I think we, we now have a pretty clear understanding of the challenges of deterring China in the Western Pacific, and, and perhaps even across much of the world's oceans as time goes on, as their ability to project power grows. Let's dive a little bit into your February article, which you wrote for Proceedings Magazine, wherein you postulate a, a maritime strategy to actually deter China. Uh, what prompted you to write that article? And could you summarize the gist of your argument for our listeners? Yeah, so, so the article was, was written as part of a, a multi-year, very ambitious uh, effort that the U.S. Naval Institute uh, is, uh, is in the midst of called the uh, American Sea Power Project. And it's really a, it's an effort to think about the role of sea power, naval power for the United States. And uh, it was an opportunity for me to, to put on paper some, some concerns that I've had, you know, from, from uh, for, for some time and hopefully just raise, raise awareness of some of these issues. And, you know, at, at the, at, at the heart of my concern is, is that uh, we just, um, 
as a as a nation, as a government, as a military, we don't we just don't think about strategy as much as as we should. We take you know we take for granted uh, things like American naval power. We take for granted the the things that our country derives from naval power, and we just don't really uh, we don't really think about them. And in particular, you know, we've we've gone through a, a long period of time, really, you know, going on three decades, where we haven't had to. We put it differently, we've had the luxury of not having to think strategically about uh, about the prospect of of war against a major power. Now, I think the uh, you know the, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, has has sobered some people up about that. And I think that's that's much needed. But really, you know, it was uh, the article was written as a as a call to action, uh, the need to think seriously about the prospect of, uh, of a war with China, not not uh, not because it's likely, but because it's possible. And I think it's increasingly possible. And if we ignore it, unfortunately, I think we make it more, you know, more probable. So to really to, to have a wake up call on that and then also to just kind of sketch out some ideas about how the United States and our allies can use our, our many strengths to improve our position uh, against against China. Yeah. And our, our listeners might. Uh, so I, I hear your call to uh, to discuss or to start thinking again about the importance of strategy. Uh, in American national security, uh, our, our listeners may recall a, a show I, we did back in uh, December with uh, Professor Stephen Walt and Professor Ron Krebs, where we actually talked specifically about does America need a grand strategy? <laughs> so that might be of interest to our listeners. They can go back into the archives. Uh, so, Dr. Mankin, you taught strategy at the U.S. Naval War College for many years. You continue to focus pretty heavily on that topic in your current work at uh, at Johns Hopkins. In your view, what exactly is strategy uh, in the context of national security? How, how would you define it? Yeah, it's a great question. And different people define it uh, uh, different ways. And some people, you know, will, will use, uh, you know, the, the noun strategy or the adjective strategic just to kind of lend, you know, lend weight to things. <laughs> uh, I have a very uh, specific de- uh, definition in mind, and it's one that, that applies to the military sphere, but it also applies just to, you know, to everyday life. So, to me, strategy is about how you array limited resources in space and time to achieve your objectives against a competitor. Mm. And so um, by definition, resources are limited. Again, whether, whether it's, it's each of us in our, our, our personal lives, there's only you know, 24 hours in a day and, and less if you decide to sleep through some of them. <laughs> only so, and there's only so much money, and so strategy is about how you array those limited resources in space and in time to achieve your objectives. But again, that there's there's this key element of competition when I talk about strategy. It's it's against a competitor, and so for me, strategy is distinct from planning. So planning is, if you will, strategy without a competitor. So planning is how you array your limited resources in space and time to achieve your objectives. So. For me, um, I need to plan, you know, I need to plan for dinner. <laughs> I need to uh, be able to array my limited resources, including time, including what's in the pantry, uh, to achieve my uh, objectives of a delicious and nutritious uh, dinner for, for me and my family. Um, now, 
I have two teenagers. And so uh, maybe I do have some competitors. And so uh, when, when I, when I'm, when I, sometimes they're competing with me, like, right. So they're, they're eating me out of house and home as I'm, as I'm preparing dinner. So I probably need a strategy there. Um, so that's, that's my, that's my view of strategy, limited resources, how you array them in space and time to achieve your objectives against a competitor. You're competing with somebody. And, and we all, always have to remember that uh, the other side has a vote in uh, what they're going to do. They have choices that they get to make as well, and that's part of that competition factor. Uh, so, Dr. Mencken, your article talks about turning geography against the Chinese, both for deterrence and, and in case hostilities actually do uh, erupt. You talk about extracting a high price from the Chinese as part of deterrence, uh, not necessarily in the military sense of attrition, but rather financially and politically. Can you comment on those ideas a little bit? Yeah, so you know that geography is what it is, right? That's one of the the good good things about geography, I guess. Uh, you know, uh, as a, as a historian, is that it's 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 unchanging, and the the geography uh, of the Western Pacific, the geography of the Pacific, uh, is such that you know we are far away from our possessions in the Western Pacific territory of Guam, for example. We're also far away from our allies in the Western Pacific to include Japan. And I'd say our, our friends or our quasi allies in the Western Pacific to include Taiwan. Uh, China's really tried to take advantage of that fact that we are far away from the things that we need to defend. But China also faces uh, a geographic challenge, which is that uh, China is hemmed in from the, the broad oceans, the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, by uh, a, what's, what's known as uh, or, uh, uh, two, two island chains, right? Two archipelagos. The so-called first island chain goes all the way uh, from Japan down to Taiwan, down to the Philippines. Then the so-called second island chain includes U.S. territory in the, in, in the Western Pacific. But those, you know, those geographic features really hem in China. And, and so those, those allies, those U.S. territories, actually could be a real basis of strength for, for the United States and our allies if we, if we properly fortify them. And I think we can, if we're, if we're smart about it, we can use geography to, to our advantage uh, to create uncertainty uh, on the part of the Chinese, to inflict cost upon them, and to uh, to cause them to kind of reconsider uh, some of their you know some of their uh, aggressive designs. Uh, if we could, let's drill down just a little bit more into your writings. Uh, you mentioned the idea of both an inside, both inside and outside forces being used to deter or defeat the People's Liberation Army, uh, and to thereby defeat the Chinese plans for power projection or to seize territory in the case of hostilities. What do you mean by these terms, inside and outside forces, and how would they be used? Yeah, and the uh, and that that terminology is very that we use uh, at, at have been using at CSBA is very is very similar, very re reminiscent to terminology the U.S. Marine Corps has, has adopted, uh, where they'll talk about stand in and stand off forces. Uh, but either way, the idea of an of a, an inside force, you're talking about U.S. and Allied military capabilities deployed forward in the in the Western Pacific in peacetime uh, routinely 
as uh, as a deterrent and as and as presence. And here we're talking about uh, land-based forces uh, to include an- land-based anti-ship uh, capabilities, la- land-based anti-air capabilities, as well as some maritime capabilities. And then for the outside force, you're talking about uh, U.S. global power projection capabilities that would that would reinforce those inside forces in uh, in case of crisis or war. Um, I know we're uh, a couple months past the end of football season, but I can't <laughs> I can't resist uh, some football analogies. I mean, your your inside force, you know, is like your is like your defensive line. You know, they're they're your they're your uh, guards, tackles, your nose tackle. They're the ones who are holding the line, and your outside force uh, are your are your linebackers and your safeties that are there to plug any gaps in that uh, in that line. That's the real, you know, that's that's the real notion behind it, uh, that we should take advantage of geography and geography that's actually very favorable to us in the Western Pacific mm-hmm. uh, to apply pressure, maritime pressure on on uh, on China uh, as a uh, as a deterrent. So you've probably seen in the in a lot of the defense uh, articles and whatnot, uh, national security articles that have been produced lately, a, a lot of. Uh... Uh, I would say uh, a, a, a aggressive critiques <laughs> of uh, the commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Berger's uh, strategy uh, documents uh, that have been put forward about how to reorganize the Marine Corps to carry out these exact same missions that you just talked about, where we have forward uh, presence uh, as a defensive role and then the ability to respond uh, should a crisis erupt. Uh, any, any thoughts on uh, the pressure that General Berger has been in from uh, under, I should say, from uh, a lot of the retired general officer ranks uh, commenting on his strategy. Yeah, I think it's really unfortunate because I think what, you know, what General Berger is doing is and has done is articulate a vision for the Marine Corps that is completely in consonance with our with our existing national defense strategy, which is focused on China focused on on uh, deterring and if necessary having to fight China in in the in the Western Pacific and I think uh, the Commandant has identified an important role that the Marine Corps can can play in preparing for the most consequential contingency that this nation faces I don't think that's the only contingency I think the Marine Corps as always, will uh you know will be first to fight will be employed where the nation needs it but quite honestly i see what he's calling for today as akin to what the marine corps did in the 1920s and 1930s mm-hmm. so in the 1920s and 1930s same geo geographical setting different potential adversary the problem was how does the united states defend the philippines which was at the time a us territory against Japanese aggression. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, U.S. naval forces were going to have to conduct a prolonged island hopping campaign. They're going to have to seize bases. They're going to have to hold bases. They're going to have to uh, establish logistical infrastructure to work their way across the Pacific in order to liberate the Philippines and defeat J- Japan. Mm-hmm. The U.S. Marine Corps, as an integral part of that, developed amphibious 
amphibious warfare, amphibious doctrine, amphibious capabilities. In other words, the Marine Corps was an important, I'd say even a vital component of an overall operational concept for the most, you know, the most consequential conflict that we planned for and ultimately faced. Yeah. And so what I see Commandant Berger doing today is much the same. How can the Marine Corps fit into planning for again, the most consequential conflict that's out there? And it's not to say that the Marines in the 20s and 30s didn't do things other than amphibious warfare. They did yeah. not say that that uh, Marines in the 20s and 30s won't do different things. They will. But to my mind, he's really trying to fit in with that, uh, um, you know, with that vision. So we've come to a point uh, in the show today where I, I do want to sort of ask this question, and I think a lot of the topics that we've covered today have sort of set us up for this. You mentioned the use of, uh, in, in China's uh, operational concept, the use of ballistic missiles for precision targeting. Uh, you've talked about uh, the Chinese working up in their ability to do combined arms uh, uh, operations and certainly joint operations between the PLA Navy and the Air Force and, and maybe even with the ground forces. Uh, we've just talked about uh, the United States Marine Corps kind of changing over their operational construct to deal with a more uh, amphibious nature or expeditionary warfare nature uh, based on the geography that we might have to fight. If you look at what's happening in a place, it, well, let's, you brought it up before, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's signaling a fundamental change in things. Uh, the Russian military went in and uh, their armored forces and uh, and whatnot are, are getting their clocks cleaned by these small unit infantry tactics using tank killing anti-tank uh, missiles. Uh, and they're, they're facing other challenges. They're using ballistic missiles for precision strike. There was just a missile strike on uh, Odessa uh, on, on the... Uh, oil refinery there. What lessons are the Chinese learning from the Russian invasion of Ukraine that might be employed against, say, Taiwan? Uh, and and what, are, what are the things that we should be learning as well from what we see the Russians doing and likely to see what the Chinese learn from this? This is a pivotal moment, frankly. <laughs> sure, uh, because, um, you know, wars are infrequent. Um, and fortunately so, right? Yeah. And particularly wars against uh, or wars between capable adversaries. And so we're right to mine, you know, mine those experiences for whatever lessons we can. At the same time, with a big caveat that every war is different. Yeah. And there are, you know, all, uh, there, there are lessons that you can mislearn or overlearn as well. Um, I think... So just let me give you one that's more technology oriented and and one that's less, you know, less technology oriented. Uh, I think so the 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 PLA should be learning a lesson from Ukraine that, uh, you know, invasion of a, of a country against a, a well-armed foe, uh, well-armed adversary with, you know, with precision weapons is is very costly and very difficult. And if. Um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine was relatively easy because the Russian rail lines go right up to the border of Ukraine <laughs> and they were able to mass and, and stage uh, an amphibious invasion of Taiwan would be much more difficult. Right. So one would hope that the experience of Ukraine would um, would give them pause there. The other the other lesson is is not material, uh, but I think it's one thing that the that the PLA will pay a lot of attention to. 
<clears throat> which is the PLA puts a lot of attention to what they call political work, mm. which is um, propaganda. It's it's motivating uh, their troops, helping them understand why they fight. And I think we we see. I guess I, th- I think that the, the PLA would would uh, diagnose in the Russians a massive failure of again what they call political work. Absolutely, <laughs> but, right? The fact that that the Russians and I think this is actually quite commendable. You know, the Russians were were deceived into believing that they were you know uh, invading uh, U- Ukraine to free Ukrainians from Nazis and fascists. Right. What were they doing? They were invading their brothers, their cousins, their co-religionists uh, who weren't fa- under the thrall of fascists. Right. So I think right. that at the again the PLA would see the need to do greater in contemplating a war against Taiwan, um, where again the 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 cultural ties are are are, are pretty close. Uh, they would see the need for much more political work than the Russians did. And, and I, I would say maybe more than anything else, uh, an understanding that logistics is king. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And in many ways, the Russians had it easy uh, compared to what the Chinese would uh, would face when it comes to Taiwan. Yeah. And uh, I know there have been some articles out uh, talking specifically about that. Uh, what lessons are the Chinese learning right now? And and one of the big ones is the the corruption of the Russian system uh, and the incompetence of the Russian system on the logistics side to keep the troops uh, fully supplied with all just the basics, food, water, medicine, uh, all those things. Absolutely. Uh, so, Dr. Mankin, you and I are both retired naval officers. We both know that war with China will be, by definition, almost assuredly and predominantly a naval war. We both understand the cost of such a war and the consequences of failing to win a war. Uh, thus, I think we both would agree that deterrence is pretty vital. Uh, what final words would you share with our listeners about how best to deter Chinese aggression or, or put incentives in place that might drive Chinese political leaders away from the ambitions that might run counter to American national security interests? And I'll, the floor is yours, sir, for about the next uh, three minutes. How's that? <laughs> Yeah, look, I would say, um, and here I, I'd launch off of what we were just talking about in terms of, uh, of of Ukraine, right? I think that the war in Ukraine uh, crucially turned on the psychology of Vladimir Putin and you know his perceptions and his misperceptions. We really do need to focus, at least for now, on uh, Xi Jinping and the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. What makes them tick? What they hope to achieve? And if we hope to deter them, we need to think about very concrete actions that will sow doubt in their mind, that will convince them that the use of force would have catastrophic consequences for them personally, for their rule, for continued communist rule in China. Those are the types of things, I mean, again, being very specific and maybe in some ways very bloody minded about this. Those are the types of things that you need to do to deter effectively. And, well, part of that, I think, will, again, come back to Ukraine. How things turn out uh, for Vladimir Putin, I won't even say for Russia, for Vladimir Putin in, in Ukraine can help deter future aggression elsewhere. Or, depending on also on how they turn out, could make future aggression elsewhere all the more likely. 
So your article was in uh, the February issue of Proceedings Magazine, published by the Naval Institute Press. Uh, you've also published a, a couple of books yourselves. Uh, could you tell us what the titles of those books are and where we can find them? Yeah, I mean, uh, for those you know those interested in in these types of topics, uh, competitive strategies for the twenty first century talks uh, talks about uh, strategy. Uh, strategy in Asia. Well, talks about strategy in Asia. Um, <laughs> learning the lessons of modern war. Well, it's about learning the lessons of modern war. It's a, a, an, an anthology talking about uh, recent wars and, and how we should think about them. And then uh, net assessment and military uh, uh, military policy uh, gets looks at at kind of strategic assessment. So for any of you who uh, find any of this interesting, those are those are places where you might want to explore a little bit more. And those can be found on uh, Amazon or? Absolutely. Okay. And then you're the CEO of a Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. Uh, what do you do? What kind of work do you guys do at uh, CSBA? Yeah, CSBA is an independent, nonpartisan think tank, <clears throat> fairly small one. Uh, we focus on policy and strategy, defense policy and strategy, capabilities and concepts and budgets and resources. <clears throat> so we have a fairly narrow focus uh, on defense and the future of defense. And we come at it in a nonpartisan sort of way, but uh, we really, yeah, we're really focused on um, improving things for the United States and, and for our close allies as well. And you teach at the, at Johns Hopkins school of advanced international studies. I, I would suggest to the uh, listeners that that's probably the premier uh, national security uh, institution for education in the country. Uh, a close, a close second, maybe a good competitor. I still would say that is the U.S. Naval War College. But what, what is the work that you do at SICE? Uh, can you talk us a little bit about that? Yeah, teaching strategic studies uh, in to graduate students, masters and PhD students, <clears throat> and we just started a, a brand new one year uh, master's program in strategy, cyber, and intelligence, mm. <clears throat> which um, I'm really, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, I'm really proud of. Uh, it's a it's a one year master's program. Really, for those who are interested in these types of issues, for for strategy junkies, it's uh, <laughs> pure unadulterated uh, kind of strategic studies, and and very much along the uh, you know the lines of the of the Naval War College, where you know I had the pleasure of teaching for 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 a couple of decades. Well, Dr. Tom Mankin, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. My pleasure. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.